Hey, listen, have you had an opportunity in your life? Uh, I, I imagine a lot of us have one place, two places to meet somebody that the world deems important that the world deems great or, or famous. I've had at least two such opportunities in my life. I had an opportunity uh, to meet with George W. Bush. You might have heard of him. And then uh, another one was Tommy Lasorda. Uh, obviously, one of these is the president, was the president of the United States. The other one, a, a Hall of Fame manager in Major League Baseball. One of those was a planned meeting. One of them I just kind of bumped into. You can probably figure out which. I, I don't guess anybody bumps into the president, do they? Hi, what are you doing here? Um, God, I got to meet them. But you know what? In both cases, you know, I got to shake their hands. I, I got to talk with them. We, we engaged there in conversation. And, and when that was over, you know, you walk away. Obviously, you walk away. That was cool. You know, that was, that was really neat. And, and you know what? I look back on that and it makes for a fun story, makes for a good memory. Periodically, you know, there's a reason, an opportunity to share a little bit about that. You know, I think when you meet somebody, and again, I imagine some of you have, when you meet somebody, like, don't you have a little bit more of an affinity for them from that point on? Because you're like, we're friends now. Probably more in my mind than theirs, but you have that affinity. Now, folks, after having said all that, I probably looking back, I would have to say the opportunity I had to meet those two men has proved to mostly be completely worthless in my life. So, gosh, that's a, that's a harsh word. Yeah, it is a harsh word. Well, do you not like that? No, actually, that word has nothing to do. I'm not saying anything about either one of those men. I, I guess when you use the word worthless, you have to ask, well, what are you measuring? What are you measuring that's saying that that was a worthless event? Well, I, I guess it would be this. Here I met these two guys. But folks, as I look throughout my life, there's not one thing I can point to that is different because I met those two guys. That, that's not saying anything bad about them. It's just saying they, it, nothing changed in my life because of that. Now, folks, Mark wants you and me to meet Jesus. And he wants for anything but that meeting to end up being worthless. I wonder how many people can share a story of meeting Jesus that really honestly is not, not that entirely different from my meeting of, of Bush or Lazorda. That they met him, there, there was a great experience, there was a great moment, they have a greater affinity for, make, makes for a good story every now and then, it has a, a good memory, but, but the reality is as you step back and say, okay, I met Jesus back there, it might have been three months, it might have been 30 years, but I met Jesus back there, and, and as I look over my life, not a huge impact. Oh, I mean, you know, this here and that there, but I mean, really not a, not a huge difference. Does that then become a worthless meeting? Now, folks, that's okay. If, if, if meeting Bush and Lazorda ends up being worthless, that's okay. It, it, it's, it's not okay when we're talking about God. And it's God who says that it's not okay when we're talking about God. You see, Jesus not only wants you to meet him, but he wants you to engage with him in a way that you are brought to a point of decision where you either reject, I'm not interested, don't believe it, think it's all myth and foolishness, or a radical life change takes place. I showed you last week two key verses in Mark. I, I think there are two verses, two ideas that really the entire gospel of Mark is built around. The first one is, is in Mark 8 where Jesus asks that question, who do you think I am? Who do you believe me to be? It is Jesus. It's not Mark. 
It's not Randy Hahn. It is Jesus that is calling you to engage with who you believe him to be. And for that to move from just a mental academic exercise into life impact. Because he says here that if, if you would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It is, folks, meeting Jesus is to have such a radical impact on your life. It's not a matter of, well, that's different and and I'm doing this different. Folks, meeting Jesus means everything about your life is different. Absolutely nothing is the same. He affects your, your relationships, your time, who you are, what you are, where you're. He affects everything. As a matter of fact, meeting Jesus is the end of you and the beginning of him. It ceases to be about your life, your agenda, and what you're doing. And it becomes all about his life, his agenda, and what he's doing. You say, well, wait, wait a minute. That, that, that almost makes it sound like my life is over when I come to Christ. Um, yeah, that's what he says, isn't it? For, for whoever would save his life. Listen, if you're going to give your life to building you, protecting you, prospering you, advancing you, you're going to end up losing it. Whether you're successful at it or a failure at it, either way, you're going to lose it. But if you take that same energy, that same passion you might give to to build, promote, and protect your life, and you give that to me, and for the sake of the gospel, you're going to find life. That is going to be life. Folks, Jesus expects an engagement with him a meeting with him to impact everything we are. And that's going to have a cost. In this world, among the people on this planet, there's going to be a cost to doing that. Different times, different places will affect a different cost, but there will be a cost. We all know that. The believers in Rome were experiencing that. And so they asked Mark for this gospel. And Mark is not writing them to debate them. He's not writing them to to convince them They believe Jesus is the Son of God. But as that cost is going up, they just, they want that belief to go a little deeper. They want that belief to have a little more content, a little bit more oomph to it. They want that belief to be a little bit bolder. And so what we're going to see in the gospel is Mark pulling out pieces of, of Jesus' life, pieces of Jesus' story that will show us who he is what he is like, what he can do to embolden, to anchor, to strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. Today we're going to start right right in the center of what that's all about. Who is he? What is the identity of Jesus Christ? And Mark, we're going to see come right out of the gate with an answer to that in Mark chapter 1. Turn there now in your New Testament, the beginning of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark. You get to Luke or John, you've gone too far. Mark chapter 1. Look at verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11. Mark 1, verses 1 to 11. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts. Gross. And wild honey. I'm okay with that. 
Verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now you might remember me saying last week that when you read the gospel of Mark, you're going to find it to be very action oriented. You're going to find it to be very fast moving. Did you feel that by the way in these verses? Did you, did you feel that in the very first verse? I mean, no, no big buildup, no, no explanation of where we are or why we are here. I mean, just boom, Jesus is son of God. Let's just get to where we're going. Let's just put it on the table. I mean, no wasted time there at all in introducing us to Jesus. Now, you know what? There's a lot of ways to introduce Jesus Christ. Mark picked one. But there's a lot of ways he did not introduce Jesus Christ. For instance, he did not introduce Jesus to us as the king of Israel or the king of all kings, though he is. He he did not introduce Jesus to us as the, here, meet Jesus. He's the friend of sinners. And he is, isn't he? Praise God. He, he did not introduce Jesus to us as a, as a great war general, as a, as a great army general, though he is the Lord of hosts and the commander of the armies of heaven. He, he did not introduce Jesus to us as a great teacher, even though what we're going to see is not only friends and believers, but even enemies and unbelievers are amazed by his knowledge of everything. And not only the knowledge that he has, but the ability and the authority by which he can communicate that. Mark doesn't introduce us to him as a great doctor, a great physician, though we're going to see he can heal all diseases. There's no disease. He fails at healing. He, he He does not introduce us to him as a miracle worker. Though we are going to see supernatural power and supernatural events in, in ways we would have never imagined, probably in ways we would have never even asked for as evidence that he's God. Now, while Mark did not introduce us to all these ways, he is in this gospel account going to show us all of these things. But he, he didn't consider any of those. He went straight to, to one title, to one idea, Son of God. Because, folks, I believe what Mark is doing in these first 11 verses is demanding our attention. He is showing us you can't ignore this. You must engage with this. Think about this, folks. I can meet a king. I've met a president. I can meet a great doctor. I can meet a miracle worker. But I can walk away from all those people without any consequence. Nothing, they may be famous, they may be successful, but nothing demands I engage with that. But son of God, I can't walk away from God, my creator, my judge. In every one of these things, Mark is saying, you have to focus here. You, you, you have to, to pay attention here. 
Now, I say there's that one title that he goes running to. There's actually two titles here. There's actually a title in his name, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it's a title, but it had, had, had so become his name by time Mark was writing this gospel that I think sometimes people forget it's a title. It's just his first and last name, right? Jesus Christ. Not sure what his middle name is, but I know his first and last name, Jesus Christ. Actually, Christ is a title. I mean, if you were going to technically write that, you would write Jesus the Christ. He is the anointed one. Christ is the, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. This is the Messiah. This is the one designated by God, the anointed one of God to bring God's rule, to bring God's reign, to bring God's kingdom into this earth. That title of loan places Jesus above all humanity. That title alone places Jesus above all human history. That title alone is a big title, but Mark shoots right on past it and he gives us the son of God. It actually is Mark's favorite way of designating Jesus Christ, Son of God. And in that, he absolutely expects us to see his eternal existence. He expects us to see his deity. This story is about the Son of God. Now, saying that doesn't make it true, does it? Writing that in a, in a book, writing that in a piece, that, that doesn't make it true. Well, Folks, everything Mark is going to be doing from here on out till the end of chapter 16 is going to be giving evidence, is going to be giving proof, is going to be giving description to that statement. What he's doing in these first 11 verses is drawing us in. He's showing us who Jesus is and then he's drawing us in. He's focusing us, focusing us so that we're really engaged as this information is laid out before us, as it's, as it's delivered to us. Now you see how he starts there in verse 2? He gives us a prophecy. He quotes the Old Testament. Do you remember me last week saying, talking about the difference between Matthew and Mark? Mark quotes, I mean, Matthew quotes the Old Testament how many times? Anybody remember? A lot, right? Sixty. Sixty times Matthew quotes the Old Testament because Matthew's writing Jews. He's trying to convince them, show them Jesus is the Messiah that is defined, that is promised in the Old Testament. So he's relying heavily on that where Mark only quotes the Old Testament one time. Boy, what a difference. But why? Because Mark's writing Gentiles. He's writing non-Jews. And not only non-Jews there in the area, he's writing non-Jews in Rome. The church there in Rome, they're not familiar with the Old Testament. He says, Isaiah said, probably most of the church in Rome didn't know who Isaiah was, didn't care who Isaiah was. So if he's only going to quote the Old Testament one time, if he's only going to show us one prophecy, why, why do it at all? Why, why muddy the waters with that? I'll tell you what I think he's doing here right in the beginning. Because if you'll stop and think about it, folks, we got all kinds of gods that pop up, don't we? We have all kinds of cultic figures. There's, there's always a new religion. There's always a new leader that says, follow me. Some actually say, I'm God. I mean, there's always something new on the scene. So I believe Jesus is God, but, but will he still be God 100 years from now? Will people still be following him? And so I think what Mark is doing right away, it's, it's almost like he's saying, hey, let's just clear this, this concern, this question off the table. Jesus is not a Johnny-come-lately God. This is not a cultic figure that just popped up. And by quoting this Old Testament prophecy, by quoting Isaiah 700 years earlier, he is anchoring Jesus, this personality, to the ancient Judaic faith. But even more than anchoring him to an ancient faith, by it being a fulfilled prophecy, he's anchoring Jesus to eternity. 
That the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of an ancient divine plan. This is something God planned in eternity past. God's going to say, thinking, I'm going to send my son into the world. I, I want you to not miss it. And so to make sure we did not miss it, he gave us prophecies. There's actually, there's 62 major prophecies in the Old Testament that point to how we know about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And what we're seeing here is one of them. John the Baptist is one of those prophecies. God is saying, hey, listen, when my son enters the world, when God enters the world, here's one thing you ought to notice. There's going to be a predecessor. There's, there's going to be this big figure leading the way. There's going to be a messenger. And do you see what his message is? What is it? Very simple, one word, repent. Repent. He said, now think what he's doing. He's preparing the way of the Lord. Kind of flowery language, kind of exciting. You know, this is what he's asking. John the Baptist said, hey, listen, do you want to clear a road so that God has a wide, unhindered uh, path into your life? Do you want God to have a wide, unhindered path into your home, a wide, unhindered path into your nation? Then repent, clean out the sin. Harsh word big word. It it implies some heavy things going on in our life. Folks, if we want a relationship with God, it means a divorce from sin. That's how heavy we're talking about here. And, And I think divorce is a good word because sin is a former lover. You know why we sin, don't you? We sin because we love our sin. Every one of us in here, we love our sin. We like what it accomplishes for us. We like how it helps us to process and understand the world and, and the people around us. We, we like the way it makes us feel. We like what it gets for us. There's a reason that we sin, folks. We love our sin. But somewhere along the way, hopefully sooner than later, we begin to realize this lover is unfaithful. This lover is abusive. This lover is destructive in my life. And if we would really start thinking about every single temptation we're dealing with in that way. This is an unfaithful, abusive lover that is trying to lure me back. I've divorced sin. The lover I have now is God and he is good and he is faithful and he is true. Those words fall short of defining how good and faithful and true God as our beloved is. And a, 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 a relationship with God is a divorce from sin. So we see John the Baptist bringing this, this one word message, repent. Now again, repent's a heavy word. It's basically saying stop sinning. Now, there's a couple of ways we might imagine John the Baptist doing this. For instance, he's a messenger. God's coming. Here's the message. We could hear John the Baptist saying this. Hey, y'all, guess what? God's coming. He's like three days behind me. And before he gets here, I'm telling you something. He is ticked off. You better stop. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Start doing this. Clean that mess up for the love of God. I'm telling you, he is so angry. He is taking names and... I'm just telling you, you better repent. I mean, repent could sound like that. So that we do not actually think that way and go that way, he makes it real clear why he's telling us to repent. Repent because God's really angry? No, what does it say? Repent because God forgives. Hey, y'all, God is coming. 
He's, he's here. He's going to live among us. He's going to live in us. Yes, there's all this garbage in us that, that makes us so unlike him and, and so unlike his heaven. But I'll tell you something. If you want to leave that, if you want to turn away from that, what you're going to find is he'll forgive you. Every sin, every time, he'll forgive you. So that's a very different way of understanding it, isn't it? That's why it's so important there that he explains, repent because God forgives. That's the message he's delivering here to us. And folks, as John the Baptist does this, he becomes a huge figure in the New Testament. He becomes a huge figure in these people's lives. As a matter of fact... I bet his message began to change a little bit. I think in the beginning it was more repent, but I think as his life and Jesus' life were about to intersect in that river, I think his message starts to change to, I'm not the one. Stop. I'm not it. You see, John was such a powerful force for good and for change. People began wondering. People, I think, I think John the Baptist is the Messiah. I, 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 I think he's it. And, and folks, when you see, you see there where it says all of Jerusalem and Judea were going out to him, you know, I, I want you to picture this setting. Do not imagine, you know, dozens of people going out there. Don't, don't imagine a, a piddly little several hundred like we are here. Picture tens of thousands. That's the impact he was having on culture. That's the impact he was having on that nation. Everybody was going out there. And, and folks, I, I think you see how big John is when you see where they were going. I actually took a picture of it uh, from our time in Israel this past spring. If, if you are in Jerusalem, okay, and you, if, if you, matter of fact, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, most of you do, we don't ever look at them unless the sermon gets like super boring. Then we become, you know, geography people. You know, what is that? You know, okay, if you go to your maps and you find one that says New Testament map or map during the days of Jesus, you'll see Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, go, go a little bit up and to the right. I think technically that would be northeast. Go up and to the right and you'll come to Bethany. And then you go a little beyond Bethany and you come to Jericho. And then as you go out of Jericho, your map will get very brown because that's what it looks like. You're, you're in desert. You're in wilderness. And then just beyond that brown, you'll see the River Jordan. From Jerusalem. Now, it says they were coming from all over Judea. So the statement I'm about to make is just about people in Jerusalem. From Jerusalem to out here. And, and it's, like I said, I described all that because that's what the New Testament describes. We, we know the area where John the Baptist was. As you you go out there, this is what you're going to. It's 25 miles from Jerusalem. I went there on a bus. If you're walking, you're talking about a full day's walk, which means when you get there after walking all day, then you're going to find a place to pitch a tent out there or whatever they pitched. And you have to spend the night out there because the day's over. You're now going to have to wait till the next day to hear John. And they were doing that by the tens of thousands, folks. And it wasn't, it, and I went out there on a bus. I mean, you get off the bus out there, it takes about five seconds to say, okay, I've seen it, let's go. What, 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 where, are we going, where are we going next? Man, there's nothing pleasant. There, there's nothing to see. There, there, there's nothing comfortable about being out there at all. You, you, there's no reason. You're not going to, hey, let's get all the kids and, and head out to the wilderness. And we'll, we'll eat at our favorite restaurant while we're there. We'll take in a little John the Baptist. Then we'll do some of our shopping. No, you're not going to combine this with a bunch of neat things to do. There is no reason to go out there. And yet by the tens of thousands they were. And then he was baptizing them. 
in that river. You know, I've taken, I've taken some great pictures of me and my family in Colorado by the streams there. People go and paint, you know, the streams and mountains. It's so beautiful. Any reason to go see the River Jordan and paint it. Folks, it's, it's, you get there. Of course, you know, this is the River Jordan. Think of all the stuff in the Bible that happens at the River Jordan. And then you get there and you go, okay, that's just a little muddy stream, not worth seeing at all. It is an incredibly unimpressive river. There, there's just really not much to it. Now, folks, I take all that time to explain all this. Tens of thousands going here to engage with John the Baptist and this message. Do you know why all this was happening? Because God was putting the spotlight on John the Baptist. God's fulfilling prophecy. He's made John the Baptist this, this messenger. And he wants John to rock the world. And he does. And God shines this huge spotlight on him. And then John the Baptist so humbly, so beautifully, so rightly takes that spotlight and shines it on Jesus. Reflects it completely off of him onto Christ. He says, man, I'm not it. Man, th th there's one coming after me so much mightier than I. That's how it's translated in, in most translations. The most exact translation of that word there, John the Baptist is saying, the one coming after me is the strong one. The strong one is coming after me. I'm not worthy to bend down and untie his shoes. To that audience, he would have been picturing a slave. He's saying, I don't, I don't deserve to be this guy's slave. Oh, you, 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 you come to me because, because I'll baptize you with water. But, but when you go to him, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know what he's saying with that? He's saying, you, you come to me because I'll give you a sign of change in your life. But when you go to him, he's going to give you a sign of God in your life. He's going to give you a sign of eternal life in your life. I'm not it. He is. Here again. Everything going on here is saying, you have to pay attention. You have to engage with this. Have you ever been the one at the office or in the classroom or even here at church that just could have cared less? I bet we all have at one time or another. You know, everybody's talking about the big game. Don't care. Don't want to see it. Didn't watch it. Don't feel like I missed anything. Everybody's talking about tonight's the season finale to this. Every show, this incredible cliffhanger. And tonight we're going to find out who murdered who and who did. Ah! What do you think is going to? Everybody's talking about it. I don't care. Didn't see it. Don't want to see it. I'm unplugging me my DVR in case somebody records it. That's not an option here. Not caring. Apathy is not an option here. Friend and foe. Believer and unbeliever alike were all pouring out into that desert to engage with and hear John the Baptist. And he pointed him to the strong one. Now this strong one, we're about to see, verse 9, he's going to go up there to John the Baptist in the river. And when you see him right away, do you know what you see? A man. He looks just a lot like us. I, I don't... I don't know what I was imagining on seeing when I saw God, but he looks like a man. I mean, how, how do you know this guy's God? If he, if he, I, mean, just, I don't know what I was expecting to see, but it, he's a man. How do we know? 
Well, folks, in verses 9 through 11, we're about to see a collision of heaven and earth. As a matter of fact, right out there next to verse 9, you might want to write, especially if it's your Bible. Well, even if it's your not Bible, they need to see it anyway. Write chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Right out there next to verse 9, write chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. If you go to chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, what you're going to see is another story of Jesus' life where we're going to see this same kind of collision between heaven and earth, between the spiritual realm and the, and the physical realm. And in this moment, we're going to see that this man is indeed God. And we're going to see that in his baptism. Now, I want to, real quickly here, I just want to take a quick time out from the passage and, and I want to say something about baptism, because this is huge, folks. Do you realize through all of church history, the church, we kind of broke up into all these denominations, didn't we? And there's all these different kinds of denominations, and there's a variety of different reasons we've broken up into these different denominations. But do you know the central reason is baptism? How do we do it? And when do we do it? And what's interesting, while that dialogue and that debate began in Scripture, it ended up being something about a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with Scripture. For instance, when you look at the New Testament, not one time, not one single place will you see a baby baptized. Not, not one single place will you see somebody being baptized because they arrived at a certain age and at this age I'm supposed to officially enter the church. I'll, I'll take a class, I'll be baptized and, and now I'm an official member of the... You, nowhere in the New Testament do we see that. Nowhere in the New Testament do you see somebody being baptized at the decision of somebody else. Baptism 100% of the time is because an individual personally has chosen to become a follower of Jesus Christ. They believe him to be the son of God. That is the only thing the New Testament shows us. And so we believe, we preach, teach a thing called believer's baptism. It is the believer, it is the follower that is to be baptized. And there is an order to when this happens. The order is you become a believer... And then you're baptized. And then we talk about, well, how? How are we to be baptized? You know, folks, you're going to see here, if you're looking down at your Bible right now, you see what's going on in verses 9 through 11. And, and I believe what Jesus is doing there, he is getting ready to begin a ministry where he's going to call you and he's going to call me to follow him. And it's hard. It, it, it's, it's going to be hard to follow Christ. And so what he does is he creates, I'm going to follow Jesus. He creates this first step that is easy. And there's going to be some challenging steps to follow. But this first step of following him is going to be, here's a place where you can do exactly what I did, hit a home run every time. And so Jesus, who is not baptized for the same reason you and I are, folks, he's baptized to give you and I a starting point. He's baptized to give you and I in a place where we can do exactly what he did. And that's how we begin our journey of following him. So why would we go to this first easy step and tinker and toy with it and tweak it? Say, well, you know, it doesn't have to be exactly like that. You could also do it. Why? Why, why would we do anything less or more than exactly what he did right there? And you look down at the passage, folks, and it says Jesus went down into the water and Jesus came up out of the water. The guy baptizing him, we call John the Baptist. You know, we think Baptist is an English word, don't we? Did you know Baptist is a Greek word that we just incorporated into the English language? To, you have to interpret the word Baptist. In the English language, it means to immerse or dunk. So really, John's name should be called John the Dunker. I don't know how we do in the NBA, but he's awesome in the water. 
Okay? It's John the Dunker. The, the, the name John the Baptist, the meaning of the word, the physical activity that Jesus is showing makes it so clear what baptism looks like. It is a picture of that person dying under the water, being resurrected up, a new life following the person of Jesus Christ. If you're here today, maybe you became a believer eight years ago, maybe it's been 38 years ago, but you don't have that order, a believer's baptism, being baptized as a believer, or you don't have the way Jesus gave it to us to do. Could I challenge you today? Man, let today be the day you decide, you know what, I'm going to do what Jesus did. I'm going to do it in the order that he told us to do it. And man, when we leave here in a moment, we've got a table right out there in the center. A group of folks be happy to talk with you. Say, man, I, we've had people pouring out there every service. Say, okay, I want, I want to get baptized. We'll do it next Sunday. Matter of fact, we'll do it any Sunday that you want to do it. <laughs> That's good for you. We're about the business of baptizing because this example that Jesus gave us becomes our great commission. The great work we do in this world. Go into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit which is what we're seeing in this moment, isn't it? Remember, as Jesus goes down into that water, he looks like a man. He looks just like you and me. But he's baptized, and in the twinkling of an eye, we're looking at a supernatural event, and the door of heaven is opened. It says that as, as Jesus is baptized, it says the heavens are torn open. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what that looked like. I have no idea what the people that day saw. It says, it doesn't say they opened up. It doesn't say somebody cranked the door. It says they're torn open. That is the, the exact literal translation that, that heaven was torn open. And it says that the spirit came down. The spirit came down on Jesus. By the way, it does not say that a dove came down. It says that the Holy Spirit came down and it looked like a dove. Like a simile. Remember ninth grade grammar? Okay, a dove did not come down. The Holy Spirit came down. And as those that witnessed it, I don't know what I was looking at. It was like a dove or something that lighted there on Jesus. And then it says that a voice spoke from heaven. In the very first verse, Jesus says, this is the Son of God. And ten verses later, the Father speaks. This is my Son. And we thought we were looking at a man and now we're looking at a radical vision of the Godhead, the triune Godhead that, that, that we never understood or imagined. One God in three persons. Incredibly difficult concept to understand from my perspective. He's, he's one in three. He's three in one. He's not more one than he is three and he's not more three than he is one. Each one mutually serving, glorifying, loving, blessing the other. There's no competition in this relationship in the Godhead. But each one gives themselves wholly and fully to centering on the other, to bringing glory to the other. And we get to see God in that moment. Now, I said it earlier, and I'll say it again here. Words on a page don't make it true, does it? I mean, did this really actually happen? How would we, 2,000 years later, validate an experience? I mean, obviously, this is not something we see. This is not something we have any experience with. We can't validate that, that that really happened like it's written there. But you know what we forget, folks? There were eyewitnesses. Sometimes three, sometimes dozens. Here with Jesus and John the Baptist, probably thousands 
They were there at the baptism. They were there when Jesus broke those few fish and those loaves and and he fed 5,000 men and all the women and children with them. They, They were there. Hundreds were there when Jesus walked up to the tomb of Lazarus and called him out of it after he'd been buried four days earlier. There was people at these events. We, humanity, do not like to see lies prosper, do we? No, we don't. Folks, as Matthew, as Mark, as Luke, as John were writing these stories down, these writings were going all over Israel. They were going all over the known world. We know here from Mark, it's making its way all the way to Rome. And folks, if people were there and it didn't happen, would they not stand up and say, that's not true? Wait a minute, wait, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I was there at the baptism. Nothing nothing like that happened. Hey, I was there when Jesus fed all those people. Yeah, they brought truckloads from the grocery store. There's no miracle there. Hey, I I know Lazarus. I was at his funeral. I was there four days later. Jesus walked up, he said a little prayer, and off they all went. He didn't come out of... People aren't going to let a lie prosper. But folks, what history shows us is not only were there not people standing up, eyewitnesses saying these things didn't happen, but rather just the opposite was happening. People were standing up and saying, I was there, I saw it at the cost of their lives. Did you hear what I just said? No motivation, no reason to pass on this lie. They don't get anything from it. Ten of the eleven apostles were brutally martyred because they were writing these things down. They were telling these stories. Why? Why would they pass if it wasn't true and it was costing them their life? Well, they, you know what? I, I bet it was is they were crazy because that's what crazy people do, right? That could be it. I mean, crazy people, a little separated from reality, telling things maybe didn't happen. But, but really, is that that's your answer for 10 out of the 11 apostles that were violently martyred? Is that all 10 of them were clinically insane? What about the hundreds of others in church history, in human history, so clear that they gave their lives giving eyewitness testimony to these stories? Can you just dismiss every single one of them? Not a one of them has anything to gain by this. You're just going to dismiss them all by saying they're crazy? That's crazy. Folks, what we just read happened. You have just seen God. And if these first 11 verses all by themselves do not show us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, at at the very minimum, they demand our attention. They demand our focus that we dive into, dig into the rest of this gospel story and see what's revealed about Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you God, it's not our wisdom, it's not our insight that we can figure out who Jesus is. It is your grace. It is your kindness. It is because you chose to reveal yourself. Lord, I thank you that in 11 short verses, you've introduced us to yourself. We have the ability to walk out of here and say, I've seen the living God through the eyes of hundreds and thousands of eyewitnesses. Lord, guide us in what that's to mean this day, tomorrow, this week ahead. God, help us. Now that we've seen it, now that our faith is a little bit stronger, God, show us what it looks like to follow you everywhere we go, in everything we do, in everything we are, in every person we relate with. May this be anything but a worthless encounter. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.